This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly sponsored by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. As a city supporter, we know you value delivery and McDelivery is up there with the very best. You'll always be winning with McDelivery because just like Kevin De Bruyne, McDelivery puts your order right on a plate. So the only thing left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered as well. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for you tomorrow. Only via the app at participating restaurants, 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Manchester United 1, Manchester City 6, it's 2 for Dzeko. Tottenham Hotspur 3, Manchester City 4. They have made the impossible possible. Hello everybody and welcome back to the City Report podcast. I am Amos Murphy. I'm Adam Booker. This is episode 4. We're getting there Adam, we're getting there, we're making the inroads. We are, yeah. And I think from a start, we should probably stop and thank everybody that has listened so far four episodes in. I think I can speak for both of us and say we've been pleasantly surprised and, and overjoyed with how many people have listened and, and reached out to us to tell us they enjoy the show and reach out with questions. And so I think we'll start there and on a happy note. Yeah, I echo that. It's been fantastic seeing the reactions, seeing the questions, seeing the debates come in, and and thank you very much for for putting us in our in your ears and, and letting us speak. Um, from one happy note to a slight, sort of slightly slightly upsetting note, obviously the world has been shaken this week by the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that has had direct ramifications across the world, across the world of sport, and for Manchester City the, ourselves. It's an utterly depressing part of life that we have to go through, that we have to unfold. I woke up on Thursday morning to find out that once again, war had hit the the streets of of Europe. Um, And I know Adam over over in the US, it's been equally sort of distressing and equally concerning. Just wanted to sort of say and, and preface this by by saying 
anybody that has any sort of issues, anybody that has any sort of problems, our DMs are open. Drop us a message. Now, we don't think we, we have listener stats and we don't think there are any Ukrainian listeners. But who's to say that there isn't somebody listening who has family in Ukraine or, or has Ukrainian connections or, or maybe studying in a different country or, or you know, any anything at all. Drop us a message. We can send you some links of ways that you can help, donations or whatever. But yeah, we just wanted to sort of kick it off by by sending sending our wishes and, and making sure that that you know we'll keep you up to date as much as we can with the with the sort of situation and how it affects city and we'll discuss that obviously with respect to to the situation going on but yeah it, it's been a pretty pretty tough couple of days and and, and here's hoping that sunshine and, and happiness is around the corner now, Adam, you wanted to jump in a little bit on this, didn't you, and just sort of speak about how this has been portrayed in certain aspects and certain areas of the media compared to other stories that that perhaps have been going around uh, just before it too. Yeah, something that just really bothered me this weekend, and I don't know why, but we saw a lot of it from from pretty prominent journalists, is the the bashing of players and coaches who are employed by clubs who are quote unquote on the wrong side of this um, world event, you know, like your Chelsea's, like even Manchester City, whose, you know, owner Sheikh Mansour is the the deputy prime minister of the United Arab Emirates. And they had their, um, you know, evil part to play in, in the United Nations. So uh, something that has just really bothered me is, you know, I'm seeing tweets from from journalists like, Oh, look at the city players wearing shirts that say no war. Don't they know who their employer is? And I am just sick of this use of evil to get good jokes out there on the internet. As if in every other walk of life, we don't praise people for speaking up for what they believe in, even if it goes against their better interests. I'm just, I'm just absolutely sick of this idea that what the the Chelsea players, the Manchester City players, any other players owned by Russian or or anybody of that ilk, uh, ownership groups. What they can't speak out against this, but everybody in every other walk of life, it's a great thing to speak out against. You know, stand up for what you believe in, even if it goes against your best interest. So to be on to be honest, Amos, I'm just I'm so sick of seeing that from people who I had looked up to before as well as journalists that. I think it's just a, a despicable take and and you're looking for clicks there. It was it was tough to watch. There was one going about um probably mid game against Everton which is obviously going to going to make up the the bulk of this podcast and we'll, we'll come to that later on but there was one going about where it was quoting the video of of Zinchenko clearly taken aback clearly touched but quite clearly distressed as well with the reception at Goodison Park and to sort of to to quote quite quite shorthand but basically saying how can he be upset about what is going on in his hometown in 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 his home country when his employers may have links to to other atrocities or, or human rights issues or or anything in general and it's just it's it's depressing and We've mentioned a lot about issues within football and the sort of the default answer is to go, but what about this issue as well? And it seems there's a complete lack of empathy at times with what's actually going on in the here and now. There are problems across society, are problems across sport and problems across football, but it doesn't mean that one thing has to be bad whilst the other is sort of excused. More than one thing can be bad. And it's just, like I said, it's just it's entirely depressing to see this unfold when people are humans, footballers are humans, and they don't need this sort of this nonsense at a time when they're clearly upset and, and distressed. 
Yeah, we just thought it was important to get that off our chest before we got going because this issue of geopolitics has had huge ramifications on the sport itself. Obviously, at Goodison Park, there was that warm embrace between Alex Inchenko and, and uh, Viltai Mikolenko before the game kicked off between City and Everton. So that that was it was tough to watch that, wasn't it, Adam? That that hug and that warm sort of that just like I said, the embrace, the taking of arms between them and, and you could just feel the the raw emotion running between the two. You couldn't and, and you know, we don't really have any um idea what their relationship is like outside of football. We don't know, you know, how close they are, but you could feel in that moment the connection between them of of you know unfortunately connecting over suffering um but that moment and and the moment of the teams coming out of the tunnel and both of them um you know in tears on the bench at at the reception from both the the home fans and the away fans at Goodison Park it it made the first I would say 15-20 minutes of, of the match it made me kind of forget there was football on and I was kind of just stuck on that moment for a while yeah it was touching it was really touching but The game itself, City returning to winning ways after a a desperate performance against Tottenham Hotspur the week prior. It's always tough when there's that seven-day period in between games. When you lose a game, you almost want uh, another one to come immediately, especially with the way City sort of operate and have bounced back. But uh, I think the only sort of adjective I could use to describe it was a scrappy game, fortunate goal, defensive error. But at the end of the season, three points, they, they count for the same with victories, whether or not it's 1-0 or 6-0, don't they? They do. It, it, it was a very scrappy game and a very important win. Um, I suspect any sort of drop points would have set off a, a mass panic throughout the City fan base, you know, as, as Liverpool are really breathing down City's necks at the moment. Um, it really reminded me of that win at Burnley in the 2018-19 season, the, the run into the treble where I think it was a late Aguero goal that only yeah. barely crossed the line and, yeah. and they gave it with the goal line technology and, and then City held on to win 1-0. Um, it just it had that feel of just get it done in any way possible and, and escape. It didn't look like it was going to be going to be done at one point City probably for for my money were worse off against Everton than they were against Tottenham the week prior we discussed how how City weren't actually that bad against Tottenham obviously I think it was 2.7 in the XG against Tottenham but but City were pretty pretty woeful at times against Everton Um, we'll jump straight into the listener questions then because we've had absolutely loads to get through Quite a few of them are about team selection itself. Now, it's the second consecutive week that the starting eleven from when it has been released hasn't looked as if perhaps we expected it to and definitely hasn't looked as, as if it has done in the in the sort of the three months prior when City went on that really good unbeaten streak. Rajveer asks us, why doesn't Pep consider Diaz and Stones as the partnership at centre-back instead of Diaz and Laporte? Is it because of the right and left footer combination? That's obviously referring to the fact Ruben Diaz was once again partnered with Imeric Laporte for the Everton game, despite concerns being carried over from the week prior that Laporte possibly needed a little bit of a stint out the team. Adam, you and I were actually speaking probably about half an hour up until kickoff, uh, sorry, until the team news was released, saying that. We would be surprised if Laporte was to play. We expected John Stones to come in there. Even even I, I made the suggestion that Nathan Ake could potentially go in on that left side if he wanted to favour the left footer. We were both shocked to see Laporte. How did you make his? How, what did you make of his his sort of contributions to the game? And and do you think perhaps going forward 
John Stones needs to come in instead. I thought he really redeemed himself at Goodison Park, to be honest. He looked pretty rough um, in, in the game against Tottenham, but I thought he was pretty much flawless at Goodison Park. Um, to be honest, I'm not quite sure why we haven't seen more of the Stones-Diaz duo this season because they were so good at the back end of last season. Um, you know, Laporte started this season pretty well, I thought, and and the right-footed, left-footed partnership does seem to be something that Pep values. Um, but with Laporte, you know, it seems to be a bit up and down with him. When he's down, um, it's very obvious. You know, there was the 2-0 the loss at home to Palace earlier in the year where I think he stepped up and got a red card right on the brink of halftime, and that kind of set the tone for the rest of that game. Um and and then there's games like yesterday where I thought he didn't really put a foot wrong. And, you know, he he does, with the ball at his feet, he adds so much value to this team. You know, this is from, from Opta Joe that I saw on Twitter. Laporte yesterday completed all 110 of his pass attempts against Everton. And that is the most passes in a game without failing to find a teammate since the data has been available in, since 2003 and 2004. And on top of that, he held the previous record with 109 <laughs> against Leicester in December. So... He clearly brings so much value. You know, the the kind of the kind of cliche Laporte pass, the raking pass from the left side all the way out to the right wing, and whoever's out there will just take it down right on the toe of their foot. Um and you know, that that brings so much to the team. So yeah, I to to wrap that all up with a bow, I think he redeemed himself at Goodison Park. There's, he's definitely the more offensive of the two centre-backs, isn't he? And you look at the impact Ruben Diaz has had on City's defence and he's a colossal figure who will throw himself in front of, of tackles if he needs to and even stopping the sort of attacks before they become threatening. But in terms of going forward, he perhaps lacks that sort of little incisive pass that Laporte can can offer, breaking the lines in between the sort of uh, the, the opposition attack and then the midfield and getting the ball into the players who really make things click. I would suggest that perhaps Laporte, maybe on another sort of City team and another sort of setup, would have been out of the team by now. But I think that Yao Cancelo being on the on the left side of the back four at uh, left back and his right footer sort of a conundrum maybe plays into that a little bit as well because you take Laporte out there, you put John Stones in and suddenly uh, should Kyle Walker start at right back as well in, in the sort of preferred back four, you've then got a back four full of right footers and we know how important balance is in terms of that right foot, left foot combination that Pep has, has so often gone to in the past and so often relied on. You look at 2017-18 and the sort of shoehorning in of Fabian Delph at left back in that time just to have that left footer and, and that option. Yao Cancelo is, we have discussed before, and I don't think it's sort of against the odds to suggest the best left-back in the in the country at the moment. So you're not going to take him out, regardless of what, what, he can, what somebody else can offer. So I do think that there is perhaps an element of the, the left-foot, right-foot combination between Diaz and Laporte. But like you said, he, he, was, he was good against Everton. It wasn't particularly the sort of game where you're looking at defenders really stepping up and standing out. Everton didn't particularly threaten a lot in terms of going forward themselves. But yeah, I would suggest that the left-foot, right-foot combination has a thing to play. be interesting going forward to see where that goes and when teams will attack City a little bit more. But moving up the pitch slightly and into midfield, this was where the real talking points were pre-game and pushing into the front three as well. Gundogan retained his position in the side, starting next to Kevin De Bruyne and, and Rodri, of course. 
I wasn't particularly enamoured with that move. I thought specifically because it forces Bernardo into a less effective position. It's not so much about the players that were in there. It was the players that weren't in there and Bernardo being one himself. We've had a, a number of questions about this and sort of people coming from different uh, different corners and different sides on the argument. Dig Vijay has asked us, is De Bruyne disrespected by City fans? Many aren't picking him in their preferred 11 right now, or not at least in their preferred midfield three. And on the other side of the debate, Daniel has asked us, De Bruyne and Gundogan look great in midfield on paper, but is it worth taking Bernardo out of that midfield three for, to fit the two in? Now, Adam, where are you on this spectrum of De Bruyne in midfield, De Bruyne out of midfield, Bernardo in midfield or on the wing or whatnot? I am somebody that will always stand by De Bruyne being in the starting 11 because he, no matter how bad of form he is in, he will always have moments of brilliance that nobody else probably on the team can can conjure up. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, to kind of answer the question in a more broad sense, my, my midfield three would be Rodri, De Bruyne, Bernardo, and Gundogan coming off the bench. Um, I know Gundogan is is crucial to the team, and you saw what he did last season in popping up with so many important goals. Um, but I think the best midfield three is is those three in there. And as far as as the question about De Bruyne being disrespected by City fans, I don't necessarily think he's disrespected by City fans. Um, but you have to admit, as a City fan, if if you've watched you know just about every minute of of his season, he's been prone to some spells of pretty poor form this season. Now you can probably chalk that up to an injury-riddled summer and a pretty non-existent, you know, off slash preseason. Um, but there has been times where, you know, in that game against Tottenham, I thought he was pretty poor. He was giving the ball away a lot. In the first half against Everton, he was pretty poor. But with that being said, everybody was pretty poor. Um, but it's Kevin De Bruyne, and and when he turns it on, he turns it on in a way that nobody else can, probably in the Premier League. So. Um, I, I think to answer that question in general, it, to me, he's somebody that is worth being picked in the eleven, no matter what form he's in. You spot on with the moments of brilliance. Um, sort of look at it. I'm not sure if that has is something that he's had to rely on a little bit more this season and obviously the accentuating circumstances with the injuries in the Champions League final and then the injury in the Euros as well hasn't didn't really help his preparations for the campaign it's not been a vintage De Bruyne campaign um I don't think that's unfair to suggest but like you say he, he's a world he, he's the best at his game he's the best at what he does in that sort of position however coming at it from the point of view of of Gundogan I thought earlier in the campaign when we weren't necessarily winning games at such a such a canter Gundogan's omission and that was down to injury that was down to team selection at times as well did hurt City because when you don't have a sort of traditional striker and we, we've done that to death already on on this podcast and no doubt we'll, we'll have to do it to death in the future as well but when you don't have a traditional striker having somebody who can make effective late runs into the box which is something Gundogan is probably one of the best in the league at doing I'd, I'd say probably along with Thiago as well at, at, at Liverpool making that late run into the box and being being a threat and being able to finish say from like the the 12 yard spot or, or even a little bit closer on is really important the, the trip to Anfield really highlighted how much City lacked that sort of late run into the box from Gundogan so I'm 
I suppose it's a case of City having so many good players. But then on the other hand as well, stripping Bernardo away from midfield when he has had the season of his life. This this is this is prime Bernardo territory. You know, he should be he should be in the considerations for player of the year, uh, the talk for that, because he, he's been unbelievable. And and whilst the numbers sort of again goals and assists don't rack up to what perhaps somebody would consider a great season. You just look at uh, Bruno Fernandes, for example. He's doing great on the numbers, but anyone who's watched him for 90 minutes this season can say that he's struggling a little bit in in United's setup. Bernardo is that sort of linchpin for City and City perform at the best when Bernardo is getting a lot of touches but against Everton he managed just 53 which was the third lowest for any of City's outfield players that started the game. I guess that leads us on to our next question that we've had come in from from both the Kipax kid and Henry, who have been pretty frank and, and basically said, what would your ideal starting eleven be, assuming everyone is fit? So, say we had a Champions League final tomorrow, we're in the City dressing room, we've got a full squad of players who are ready to go. Who is on your starting eleven, Adam? Yeah, I'll make this quick because I think this can be a kind of long answer. Um, I've kind of got two teams in a sense with only one change between them i think the back four slash five is pretty easy ederson and goal walker any combination of stones and diaz or diaz and laporte um, and then Cancelo at left back midfield three rodri's always in there de bruyne is always in there for me and bernardo is always in there um <clears throat> and i think the best front three we've seen this season has been riyad Mahrez, phil foden Raheem Sterling. Now, the one change that I have is if you want that team is a bit of a swashbuckling team with with three very direct wingers or you know uh, as the front three. Um, but I think the one change that you could have in there is if you want a bit more control and you want to kind of suffocate the game and suffocate the opponent. I do think you can move De Bruyne up into that false nine, bring Ilkay Gundogan in, and then you solve the conundrum of getting all of those midfielders into the team um, and you have a bit more control that way. But either of those two uh, very similar teams is what I would go with. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much with you. Um, definitely on the back four, I would, I would be sort of, I'd say Stones and Laporte are pretty interchangeable. Diaz is the the hundred percent starter in that back in that back four, but Stones and Laporte are, are sort of either or for me, depending on what sort of attacker you'd go up against. If it's a little bit more physical, I wouldn't mind to see John Stones put himself against a, a sort of a, a man-to-man striker. But if it's where City are going to have a lot of the ball, Laporte for those sort of breaking passes that we've spoken about. Um, midfield, this is probably where the conundrum sort of comes from. And then obviously that pushes into the front three as well. I would probably pick Rodri Bernardo as 100% and then one of De Bruyne or Gundogan. If I'm to sort of, if, if I've got a gun at my head and to say it now, I'm probably going De Bruyne purely because of the world class moments that he can produce. Um, in the front three, Mares is a 100% starter for me. It, it's pretty disappointing to see him being dropped out of the team, which we'll speak about shortly. I'd go Foden in there as well, just for the the, the raw talent and, and the sort of moments of brilliance he can provide. And I'm probably going to go for Gabriel Jesus as the central attacker, purely because this is something you brought up um, a couple of weeks ago yourself, but purely because the, the, the things he can offer in the press and just the way he can harry defenders and really win the ball back high up. He didn't have that many touches. I was looking at the stats. He didn't have that many touches when he came on against Everton. 
but I don't know what it was. It just felt like City were a bit more energised when he came on and, and everything was done at a faster pace, which is, is something you'll expect for Jesus. And sometimes that can be a bit haphazard and it can look a bit disjointed at times. But I thought against Everton, he made a really good impact when he came on. So I, I'm probably looking at trying to find a way for Jesus to, to get into that team. Yeah, he's certainly a game changer. Um, you know, his energy off the bench is is so vital because of that pressing, like you mentioned. And if he comes into a game where we've been kind of running a team ragged for 70, 65 minutes, like we did against Everton, um, and he comes in and, and he starts running at you with fresh legs, full speed, putting the, the keeper under pressure, putting the center backs under pressure, um, it's, it's going to change the game drastically. Um, on top of that, He's a bit of a different look up front for the opposition defense. You know, he can be a bit more of a direct number nine as much as you can be in this city team um, if we want him to. You know, even though we've typically seen him from the right this season, he actually has been really good off the bench centrally and and making those those center forward runs and and just being a bit of a different look. So to me, I think actually think his best role is off of the bench because he is something different. He has he has qualities that other players uh, in this forward ranks don't have. Um, and I think that's what makes him so vital off the bench. And, and I mean that as no disrespect to Gabriel Jesus. It's it's not that I think less of him than anybody else in that front three. I think it's just the role that he plays coming off the bench is, is very important. There are certainly players who are more suited to sort of being introduced after the hour mark. I think there was a period of, of Edin Dzeko's career at City where that was definitely the case and, and it can be frustrating, especially as an attacker, because you want to be in from the start. But there is sort of parts of, of some players there when defenders' legs are tiring that you can really get at them. And, and yeah, Jesus has impacted that in, in the last couple of games. Another one was Southampton. I thought when he came on, City really started to click. But um, but personally, I, I, I think he, he goes under the radar a lot of the time with, with his contributions from the start. Another player who who has perhaps gone under the radar over the last 18 months or so, but is definitely, or at least until uh, until last week, was definitely getting the rewards and the praise that they deserved, was Riyad Mahrez, of course. And he's had to sit out the team from the start for, for the last two games, and he's been sort of only afforded 15-minute cameos towards the end of games and stuff like that. Daniel's asked us, Daniel again has asked us, um, given his... Given he's our top scorer this season, what does Riyad Mahrez need to do to get regular league starts? It's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think most people were expecting for the Everton game for for Mahrez to come back into the team, especially after sort of how how I don't think City were poor against Tottenham, like we've said, but there was definitely something missing, and it felt like it was Mahrez. Where do you sort of come in on this? Because is it just a sort of, is it a needed break? It felt like he was really clicking. It felt like he was starting to get going. Or is it is it something a little bit deeper that our our minds as, as, as normal laymans and, and not the genius that Pep is aren't necessarily picking up on? I've got to say, I'm pretty confused about the situation. I saw that that question come in from Daniel and I almost just responded to him and said, I have no clue. <laughs> um, because I don't really know what he's done to not be first or second name on the team sheet because he's been so good going forward this season. Um, you know, if you think a little bit deeper, like you said, could something have, have happened in training? Could Pep have seen something in training that he didn't necessarily like and therefore he's dropped from the starting 11? I'm not insinuating anything. I'm just brainstorming. Um, but like you said, he's, he's probably been the best attacker this season. Um, 
And, you know, we saw it against against Sporting in the Champions League, how unbelievable he was on that right wing. Um, so I don't really know what he has to do to get into that starting eleven on a more consistent basis because the team is definitely better with him in it. And like we talked about earlier, him kind of being a one role man, you know, there's a lot of multi-role men on this team. There's a lot of guys that can play false nine, left wing, right wing, either one of the eights in midfield. Um, He's kind of a one role man. And because of that, it brings a bit of balance to the team where it forces Bernardo to be in the midfield. It forces, you know, Kevin De Bruyne, to then be in the other spot in midfielder, so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, to answer the question, I don't really know what he's done to not get into this into the starting lineup more consistently. It was really bizarre. I sent a tweet out on Friday night, sort of saying um, the Tottenham game was the first match this calendar year that Riyad Mahrez hasn't started whilst being available. And obviously the caveat to that was he missed the couple with, with AFCON duty, but there's still like 10 or so games this season where, where he started and he has been the man from the off. One thing that struck me against Everton was the lack of width city were playing with. And now that's sort of except that it's going to be the case when you've got Bernardo Silva playing as a winger because he wants to come inside and he wants to receive the ball and he wants to sort of operate in that central central spaces that he's done so well this season. That wasn't a shock to see. However, when you've got uh, someone like Phil Foden on the opposite side who isn't the most naturally wide man himself, I know he drifted inside a little bit and, and interchanged with Raheem Sterling, who, who can do that really well, but it just felt like City's outlet out wide had completely disappeared and it made defending for the um, for the, for the Everton fullbacks so much easier when you've got wingers who are sort of, their starting position is five yards in field. That That's just, that that's like fullback defending 101. That, that's just, you know, how many times have we seen City eliminate the attacking threat because their fullbacks, uh, their, sorry, their wingers have, have started their, their starting position sort of in the middle of the pitch a little bit. So it, it was it was a surprise and, and who knows going forward what will happen with that. There may be stuff behind the scenes. We don't have, we don't have a word on that. I don't know, but it's interesting to see. And just to add to that, you know, to compound that idea of the lack of width on that right wing, you also take Kyle Walker out of the team and you put John Stones in and you have a completely different type of overlapping run from John Stones than you do from yeah. Kyle Walker. Kyle yeah. Walker's just going to get on his bike and go straight to the to the byline and that opens up lanes for Riyad Mahrez to cut back in, whereas you're not getting the same kind of overlapping run and it does give you kind of a mess <clears throat> out on that right flank and and it you, like you said, it made it very easy for Everton to defend. John Stones' overlapping runs, oh my God. Just something. It's just something to behold. I don't necessarily mean that in the good way. When he first played there against Brentford, I thought he did well, but he looked like he looked like a centre half playing at right back. Against Everton, I thought that was probably the end of the John Stones experiment at right back. There, there was a few moments where he'd take the ball past one player, and you'd be like, "Oh, here we go, this looks good." And then his next touch would just be just be bumbling out in front of him, and, and suddenly Everton on a counter attack, and you're thinking, "Oh my god, this is this is going to cost us." It looked like he'd won a competition to play there at times. It was it was um, it was interesting to watch, and we'll have to wait and see because Kyle Walker's out for the Sporting game. 
um, we assume it would be a catastrophe if City didn't progress from that. So we assume there's a quarter final where Kyle Walker's going to be missing as well. So we could be looking at saying like going to I don't know PSG or against Liverpool or you know a, a big big game in the Champions League quarter final where John Stones is again drops in at right back. So that sort of turned from a little bit of uh, excitement, a little bit of parody to a real issue that City might have to face going forward. Yeah, and I'm not totally sure why you can't go Jao Cancelo on the right and Zinchenko on the left. Um, I don't. It's an, Zinchenko is another one for me that I'm not quite sure what he's done to not see more of the pitch. Um, I thought he was brilliant on the back end of last season, especially the the run into the Champions League final. I think he started that final over Cancelo, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, yeah, he did. So. I, again, it's it's another one that I'm not quite sure why he can't get on the pitch this season. We know how Pep is. He he kind of gets in a groove with certain aspects of the team, and then he's not willing to change them, as we see with the Cancelo-Laporte partnership out on the left. No matter what happens down that left side defensively, he doesn't want to change it. Um, but I, I think you know if the John Stones experiment is not working out, then of course you have that option of Zinchenko on the left, bring Cancelo back over to the right where he naturally, where he's in his natural position. Um, So that's an option as well. Yeah, I think it was after the Norwich game. um, Bill DiFilippo put out a tweet saying this is the part of the season where Zinchenko suddenly becomes City's best player. And it felt like that, didn't it? It felt like there was a real option for him to sort of come in there and and with Kyle Walker out for the Champions League games and then João Cancelo sort of being able to play that side of his quote-unquote natural position. It really felt like Zinchenko was going to get a run of games. Now, as we speak today, um, it, it's just coming out that Zinchenko will play against Peterborough. I don't think that's pretty much I don't think that's a shock at all. We probably expected that. So we'll see how he does there but it just seems like a sort of unnecessary problem to sort of shoehorn in a, a central defender who going back uh, five or six years faced huge criticism for sort of unnecessary unforced errors that seemed to over the last 18 months or so completely be eradicated from his game with the assurance that Ruben Diaz has brought so it seems like he's sort of being thrown in the firing line a little bit John Stones and it, again it, it, like I said it seems an unnecessary problem that that City can easily combat by playing Cancelo on the right and bringing Zinchenko on the left who knows we're, we're not Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola and, and to have a day with him sort of speak about football I think is something we can all dream about but uh, the last sort of talking point from the Everton game, of course, is the Rodri handball or sleeve ball go. or wherever you want to come on this. Taking a big, big sip of my cappuccino. Yeah, yeah. batter down the hatches because this one could get very, very messy. Um, I guess we'll just sort of run through it chronologically. Edison makes a save off a Richarlison, a Richarlison shot. It spins back. And Rodri goes to control it with his chest. I think we can rule out any form of intentional handball straight away. He, he didn't mean to do that. He's an, a consummate professional. Why on earth would he would tr- try and control the ball with his hand when nobody's about whilst VAR is in operation? It was not intentional. It was a nasty spin back on the ball. His arm was probably quite lazily out in an unnatural position. And it struck a part of his arm, which, depending on who you ask, would tell you it is either the sleeve or it is either at the top of the bicep. 
I thought penalty straight away, Adam. I don't know when you saw it, what your initial reaction was. I was surprised it wasn't given on the field and I was surprised during the VAR uh, sort of analysis of it that it wasn't given either. So you want, do you want to talk us through where you sort of come in on this one? Because it was, it was definitely a talking point, let's say. It was, and I think it's interesting that I think we had two completely different experiences of it because we were watching on two different broadcasts. Um, cause the U S broadcast had a completely different take on it than, than the English broadcast. Um, first of all, the whole situation is just complete shambles from, from the get go. Um, upon first look, it definitely seemed to be a clear handball. Now that the dust has settled and all the info and the explanations have come out and have been released by the Premier League, we know that the penalty wasn't given because the current handball rules state that if the ball connects with the sleeve area of the arm, then it's not a penalty. And from most of the looks uh, of that on VAR, it looks like it connects with that that area. Agree with that or not, that is the laws of the game. These days, who knows what it'll be next Saturday. Um, here's where it got really messy. On the U.S. broadcast, they told us almost immediately that the penalty was not given because of an offside in the buildup. And to add to that confusion, typically when the the referee gets the you know, gets the final call from the VAR in his ear. You know, he does the little um, <laughs> the TV symbol, the TV symbol with his fingers, and then he will either say no, like wipe it off with his hands, or point to the spot. Now, what I think it was was it Paul Tierney or was it Chris Kavanaugh? I it can't was remember. Chris Kavanaugh. Yeah, Chris Kavanaugh. Chris Kavanaugh. What he does is he puts his hand up in the air to signal an offside. Now, <clears throat> what we know now, he was giving the offside that happened after the handball, which was what called the play dead and led to the VAR check. Whereas if he was giving an offside in the buildup, that's when he would then put up his, his hand and say, after a check, it was offside. So this, to me, this was all a huge failure in communication and the whole controversy could have been avoided if they were able to communicate things clearly from the VAR to the, to the referee, to the stadium, to the television broadcast, because for about an hour after the game, the post-game coverage on the U.S. broadcast was saying offside in the buildup. And that's what everybody in the U.S. went away with. Um, and then everybody in England was getting no handball. So it's complete, complete nightmare. And what it, what it really highlights, it highlights the garbage handball rules in the Premier League, but it also highlights just how horrific their attempt at VAR has been, and that's mostly because of the communication issues. You're 100% correct, and I think we can skip past the the debate side of things because, personally, I, I it's one of them for me, if it had been given on the field at the time and the referee had seen that and, and sort of what we all thought at the time and, and gone penalty and the penalty had stood, I don't think there'd been any complaints at all. The... I don't know why he didn't give it straight away because personally, from from his sort of from his eye line, it looks as if he was in a, a sort of spot on position to to see that and, and award it. When you go through the complexities and the technicalities of it, and, and you see like there is a literal, it's the only way to sort of do it, I suppose, isn't it? To say this is handball, this is not. Here's a here's a graphic. If it touches the sleeve, then it's not handball. I don't know if we're going to get to a situation where clubs just start all wearing long sleeve shirts. I, I know there's sort of some weird FIFA rules that prevent that in some competitions and, and that may be why, but it does seem like that, that 
arbitrary line does help in a way. Um, I can see why Everton fans are, are annoyed by it. I, don't get me wrong. I can, I, I'd be I'd be furious if that was at the opposite end in, in the 80-odd minute, whatever it was. Um, but as you highlight, it is another, another example of the complete and utter farce that is Premier League refereeing. And I think we've seen, again, the, the debate rear its very, very, very ugly head, suggesting that, X club has a conspiracy against referees, or X club has an agenda uh, from from Premier League referees or the PGMOL. That's just not the case. <laughs> to suggest that Premier League referees are competent enough to provide some sort of league wide conspiracy and 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 sort of pull that out and and, and make it happen is just another. It's a fallacy. It's complete and utter fallacy. So the issue is with referees and the and the standard of officiating. Everton have since released a statement where they, they've sort of said that they're going to the PGO, uh, PGMOL to discuss it and, and sort of make a complaint, essentially. Uh, I think that's the word they use, make a complaint. But they're not the first club to do that. And I think that is, again, stone-cold proof. If there are a number of clubs in the league that are having to make complaints about the standard of refereeing, it probably says there's an issue somewhere along the line, whether or not that is with VAR itself or the officials uh, uh, sort of in general, who knows. But there are definitely more and more issues that are starting to come out and starting to be sort of uh, sort of as an effect of this, which it's not what we like to do. We don't want to sit here and speak about a refereeing decision because it's just, <laughs> to be frank, quite boring. It is. And, you know, in the with the whole conspiracy, conspiracy nonsense, in trying to discredit these referees, you're giving them way too much credit in saying yeah, that they have yeah. an agenda against a, a specific team. Like you said, the, the standard of refereeing is just piss poor in the Premier League. There is a reason that English referees don't get invited to big FIFA competitions, whereas you get referees from, from Spain, Germany, the Netherlands, where, wherever you, you think you can think about, but they don't come from England. Um, there's a reason for that, but look, I, I know that nobody wants football to become Americanized. I'm one of those people. There is a reason that I would rather sit on my couch and watch second division German football than go out and support my local NFL or NBA team because I don't enjoy it. But one thing that they do very well in American sports is communicate refereeing decisions to the crowd. And one of the things that I think needs to be brought in in the Premier League, and I know this is kind of a risque topic because it could lead to, you know, stadiums kind of boiling over, but it would have solved so many issues and calls for corruption and agendas and confusion if he gets on the mic and says, after VAR review, the ruling on the field is no handball because the ball, you know, hit the t- the sleeve or whatever. I'm sure they'll have a more official yeah. wording for it. But that <laughs> that is the thing that really bothered me about this whole situation is they caused this chaos with their lack of communication. Do you know why England referees don't get the big competitions, Adam? I do. Why? Because because England make the finals. England, England go deep in these competitions. You can't, you can't be refing the UEFA Championship final if England are in it. But no, it, it, it's spot on. It is spot on. England, English referees and, and competency aren't necessarily two words you'll put together. But we will, we'll park that because it, it's been a chaotic couple of days uh, post Everton. There's been plenty of talking points and, and sort of internally in terms of City and externally in terms of referees. Moving forward, there is the big one um, next. Sunday, half four kickoff UK time. 
Manchester United visit the Etihad. Now, I have lived through enough derbies where City have been not very good at football and United have been winning Premier League titles, European titles, domestic cups and City have won games against United because that's what happens in derbies. Form is turned on its head and, oh God, I'm already dreading it. I don't know about you if the nerves have kicked in yet, but I cannot stand playing United. I think the whole day, the whole build-up is just sort of insufferable at times. It is. And to add to it, we've been absolute garbage against them at home in in the last four or five seasons i can't remember i think it was maybe 2018 19 the last home victory in the derby in the league um so (laughs) i'm not looking forward to it to say the least i don't know anybody who is and if you are looking forward to it i'd love to hear what it what the redeeming (laughs) qualities of this fixture are um especially the fact that it comes now in what feels like a title run in in which you cannot drop points in any game or it's almost season ending. Um, so like you said, form is out the window. It doesn't matter what kind of run they're on, what kind of run city you're on. It just becomes a, an absolute toss up. It's a really big part of the season for city starting on Tuesday night against Peterborough when between now and the end of April, there is a guaranteed 10 games already. And then that could rise to 15, depending on FA Cup progression and Champions League progression. So it's going to be a case of City. Uh, there's an international break in there as well. So that's what it takes a few uh, a week or so off it. It's probably going to be a case of City playing weekend game, midweek game for the next I don't know, it could be until the end of the season, depending on progression in in either competition. So it's really crucial and it does feel like it has to happen now for City. It can't be one of those periods where stuttering happens and points are dropped and, you know, maybe go behind for 70 minutes of a game and come back and take a point and and where in other parts of the season that'd be be a decent result, a decent comeback. It has to happen now because Liverpool have got that trophy under the belt uh, in the Carabao Cup. It took over from City's reign and they're going to want more. We know what it's like as City fans when you get that first cup over the over the line in February, you want more straight away. You want to be back at Wembley. You want to be winning the big game. So they'll have the bit between the teeth. They're obviously, they had their rut and now they're sort of bouncing back. City have to bounce back quick. And it's a big period of the season, but that's where the money's made. That's what Pep Guardiola is paid to do. And, and we'll wait and see and, and we'll see what happens. But yeah, it does feel like a major, major part of the season. It does. And it's, it's feeling like the 2018-19 run-in in which oh God, yeah. n- nobody's going to drop points and it's going to come Nobody's going to sleep. Nobody's going to even right. eat for about three months. Yeah, definitely. I was actually thinking myself um, when when Liverpool won the, the Carabao Cup, it, it's quite interesting because for the first time in, well, since 2017, if City are going to win a trophy this season, it's going to happen in May. And there's no sort of now reassurance of, of falling back on that Carabao Cup. And the FA Cup's an incredibly difficult competition to win. You don't need to speak about the Champions League and obviously the Premier League as well. But um, I think that'll do for today. You can find us, obviously, on Twitter, delivering our equally hot takes, albeit in word format. Have you got anything to add, Adam, before we, we get out of here? I do not. Uh, I hope that we will be back next week and it'll be all smiles. That's all I can say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I echo that. Until next time, everyone, thank you for listening. Drop us a follow on your podcast streaming service. 
get to us on Twitter, send us in your questions, anything you want us to speak about. We've had loads today and most of them were sort of time sensitive with the Everton game and on the back of that. We've got a couple that we've bookmarked for future episodes. Like I said, there's an international break coming up, so we'll, we'll do some loads, loads of cool stuff during that period in time. But until then, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you later. See you. Make sure you're geared up for Man City's end-of-season running with McDelivery. Great food delivered right to your door. By using McDelivery, you won't miss a moment of City's crucial running, and just like Kevin De Bruyne, they deliver your order exactly where you want it. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. Are you in? At participating restaurants only, 18 and plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply, see mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.